Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. I will not stop tweeting. I will not stop posting. I will not stop asking questions. That was Marjorie Taylor Greene repeating my own personal mantra. I will not stop tweeting. I will not stop posting. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. Dan's on vacation this week, and I am lucky to be joined by Mehdi Hassan, the host of the Mehdi Hassan Show on Peacock and MSNBC. Mehdi, welcome back to the pod. Thanks so much for having me, John. I think it was a year ago that you were uh, guest hosting on the pod uh, with Tommy because it was uh, when my son was born. And yes. he's about to turn one tomorrow. So this has Congratulations. Been, been a year since you've been on the pod. Thanks. Uh, We have a lot of news to cover today. Uh, Joe Biden's town hall in Cincinnati, where he spoke about the pandemic, the economy and the filibuster, the Republicans intraparty battle over vaccines and the one six commission. And later, I talked to Equis Research co-founder Stephanie Valencia about how Latino voters are reacting to all the latest news about immigration. But first, it's Thursday, which means we've released a brand new episode of Edith with President Wilson back in charge in the League of Nations vote days away. Edith is nervous. There are only two more episodes of Edith, but you can binge the first six episodes now. Check it out. Also, the Crooked Store is having a massive summer sale through July 31st, up to 70% off your favorite Crooked gear. And as always, we donate a portion of every order to vote riders. So check it out at crooked.com slash store. All right, let's get to the news. President Biden was in my wife Emily's hometown of Cincinnati last night. For a CNN town hall with Don Lemon, the president answered 90 minutes worth of questions, but kicked it off with a topic on everyone's mind, the pandemic that just won't quit. Here's a clip. So you said last month that this, um, that the virus is in retreat. Do you still feel that way? Is that still the case? Well, look, here's, it's real simple. We have a pandemic for those who haven't gotten a vaccination. It's that basic, that simple. 10,000 people have recently died. 9,950 of them or thereabouts are people who hadn't been vaccinated. So Biden went on to say that the CDC will likely announce that every child under 12 should wear a mask at school and that he expects full FDA approval for the vaccine sometime between late August and October, which would provide firmer legal ground for vaccine mandates. Um, Mehdi, clearly we're in a new phase of the pandemic where things aren't as great as they seemed a few months ago but much better than they were a year ago. How do you think that Biden and the White House should handle that? I think they should take it seriously, which they kind of are. I think we've got to stop playing catch up. For me, it's less about Biden. It's more about all of us as a society and a country who want to keep writing this virus off and saying, it's time to move on. It's back to normality. The number of times I've opened my nightly show on Peacock over the last uh, eight months, nine months saying, oh, good news. You know, we're nearly there. Light at the end of the tunnel. Cases are down and then actually one step forward, two steps back. 
this is a very resilient virus. The Delta variant is a serious thing. And I think that the CDC decision in May on masks, I wasn't a fan of it at the time. In hindsight, it could be the biggest blunder that we've seen from this administration. I mean, it's not, it wasn't a political decision. It's not on Joe Biden's ads. came from the scientists in the CDC, Fauci and Walensky and co. I think it was a mistake. I know why they did it, to try and incentivize vaccine uptake. But you're looking now at, you know, the American Association of um, Academy of Pediatrics saying yesterday, kids in school, the rules, as you mentioned, are changing. L.A. County has brought back indoor mask mandates in public places. I think I think we're going to regret that as the summer goes on, because we've seen the parts of the country that are unvaccinated. We don't know, even with us fully vaccinated people, there's a whole debate about breakthrough cases, how high or how easy it is to get it or not. And I just feel like at every juncture of this pandemic, John, we have been understandably wanting to get on with it, like get back to normal, get back to normal. And it's an understandable human reaction, but it just doesn't work in the face of something like COVID-19. I mean, I try to separate this out into sort of the science and and the politics. And on the science, I can understand the CDC decision on masks because the science still says that the vaccinations are extraordinarily protective, even with the breakthrough cases on the rise. One of the reasons that breakthrough cases are on the rise is because there's just more transmission of the virus. And if you do the math that you're going to get a certain percentage of breakthrough cases, even with the vaccines as protective as they are, you're going to get more breakthrough cases. So I understand the science of the mask. I do think the challenge was saying, okay, you know, unvaccinated people are going to put their masks on and that's going to be on the honor system, right? So you can't tell if in you're in a store who's vaccinated yeah. and who not if, if, if no one's wearing a mask, which makes me think that the next place we need to go is, you know, vaccine passports or vaccine requirements. So if you're a business or you're a crowded event or you're holding doing something like that, you say, look, um, we're not going to force you to get vaccinated, but you just can't be part of this yeah. <laughs> this this event if you're if you're not vaccinated. But we're, we're, we're too late to this conversation, John. The right have already led the way on this conversation by a demonizing vaccine passports as some sort of kind of anti-American illiberal anathema, even though mandatory vaccinations for kids in school have been part of our society for decades. Vaccine passports when traveling internationally have been around for hundred years. And, you know, there's even Supreme Court precedent. People should just go Google Jacobson versus Massachusetts. At 1905, Supreme Court came out saying states have the right to insist on things. And then, of course, there's the argument that, you, you know what Republicans are doing at a state level, right? In Montana, they passed a law saying businesses cannot prohibit uh, people, you know, any business cannot stop from providing goods to people who are unvaccinated. They're basically treating unvaccinated people as a protected class like religion, race, gender, sexual orientation. It's like, it's the new civil rights movement for the right. It's like- Yeah, I was gonna say, they're, they're, fi- yeah, they're finally coming out for civil rights, but it's for uh, unvaccinated people. It's for, it's people. for privileged <laughs> white ignoramuses in the South who could get a vaccine. Millions of people around the world would love some of these American vaccines. The level of privilege and ungratefulness involved in not getting vaccinated in a country like America where it's readily available and free and then saying, not only am I not going to get vaccinated, but I insist on being able to walk into a business with, without a mask on, without being vaccinated and be treated like everyone else. No, I'm sorry. If they want to turn it into the civil rights movement, go for it. Because I think eventually the majority of Americans who do get vaccinated are going to say, how long should we have to sacrifice for, for these people making everything worse for all of us? I'm pretty hard line on this. And there was a, there was a tweet that went viral yesterday, which I stupidly shared and then deleted. That's why you should verify uh, of Macron apparently saying, you can't go to restaurants and cafes. Why should the rest of us have to? And and afterwards, everyone's like, it's a fake quote. And I'm like, okay, it's a fake quote, but someone should say it for real. 
Because whatever that fake right. quote yeah. was, I, I believe it. I'm yeah, no, I believe that. <laughs> yeah, I'm a liberal. There's, there's on this issue, there are, have to be restrictions. Like I said, go check the Supreme Court precedent. The Supreme Court said in 1905 that you know what, liberty is not absolute for the individual when society collectively is at risk of mass death. Yeah, no, look, I, I feel the same way. I, you know, LA, I'm here in LA and they, you know, uh, reinstated the mask mandate and I'm completely fine with with wearing a mask, of course. But, you know, the, the county health folks said, but everything is on the table if this gets worse. And I'm like, OK, we are not going to start going back to lockdowns and restrictions and closing businesses down when we haven't even the city of LA hasn't even mandated that its own employees get vaccinated. <laughs> like, yeah. And you're going to start closing things down? No, I don't think so. It's not going to happen. No, I mean, we, we, no one's ever going to agree to lockdowns, vaccinated or unvaccinated. So the only issue now is how do you, A, incentivize people to get vaccinated and B, and the French have done what's not fake is that France has brought in uh, all sorts of better incentives in terms of access to public places and all of that stuff. But, you know, and, the, and here in America, we've seen the vaccine lotteries have had some uptake. On. When you offer people money, surprise, surprise, or the chance of money. Uh, they get yeah. vaccinated. And then separately, yeah, we're going to have to start saying, you know, what the Republicans call discrimination and civil rights movement. Fine, I'm all for it. Let's have that argument. I suspect they'll lose. And I think it's a topic uh, I like talking about these days. And your colleague, Brian Boitler at Crooked, is very good on this, which is, yeah, let's have the culture war and let's win it. I totally agree with that. Um, so the president also got a, a question from Don Lemon about the latest developments in Congress uh, uh, about his economic agenda, uh, which... Some of the lamest people in Washington have taken to calling the BIF, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework. Uh, let's take a listen to the clip. You're talking about Senator Ron Portman of Ohio. Can yeah, I, I'm since, sorry. I thought so, yeah, no, but no, since you, you mentioned that uh, infrastructure, the Bipartisan Infrastructure uh, deal failed, the procedural vote today, right? But no, but yeah, it did, in the but Senate that's irrelevant. Today. Go on. Okay. In the Senate, negotiators say that they need more time. Yeah. Okay. So then, but they expect to vote again on Monday, but how much time do you think that they need to get this done? Till Monday. Look, no, I'm not being facetious. I'm not being facetious. You had up to 20 Republicans sign a letter saying, we think we need this deal. We think we need this deal. So I think there'll be, you, by the way, the reason we're talking this way, we need 60 votes to get something moving. And what's going to happen is I believe, because I take my Republican colleagues at, my, at their word when you shake, I come from a tradition in the Senate, you shake your hand, that's it. You keep your word. Uh, most of the Democratic and Republican senators negotiating the deal seem to agree with Biden that they'll be ready by Monday. All the Republicans sent a letter to, to Schumer basically saying, yeah, we're ready to go on Monday. There are a few Republican skeptics in the gang. Uh, what do you think, Mehdi? Will bipartisanship prevail? The holy grail of Washington? <laughs> There's literally no word that annoys me more than bipartisanship. Although BIF <laughs> is an annoying word, and I'm glad you it's highlighted close. how nerdy it is. I would also say that I have an instinctive uh, irritation with BIF. Because Biff was, of course, the baddie from Back to the Future. And Biff mm -hmm. in Back to the Future, for those of you who don't know, was based on Donald Trump. A lot of people don't know that trivia. But the I writers of Back that, to the actually. Future, they did model the character on Donald Trump at the time in the 80s or whenever they it was. They did a good job. Uh, yeah. They did a good job. Um, bipartisanship, it's the dumbest thing in the world. I'm with Senator Bernie Sanders, who says when people got their checks from the American Rescue Plan, they did not say, did a Republican and a Democrat vote for me to get this check? How was this check produced? They just care that they got a check. They just care that they're getting child tax credit payments. They want their bridge not to fall down. I don't think they give a shit if the bridge falls down with the assistance, you know, you know the, the, the bridge was saved by only Democratic votes, not Republican votes. So I do have an issue uh, with bipartisanship. There is no bipartisanship. I mean, sorry, all of this stuff, 
all of this stuff is for me is is secondary to voting rights. Um, I, I know we're going to talk about it. It was one of the big things on the CNN town hall as well yesterday. For me, I'm kind of like, okay, they got some Republicans on board. Great. We've saved our bridges. We, have we saved our democracy? Like all of this is secondary to the only issue that matters to me right now, which is preserving our elections, our democracy, our voting. And for that, there is no bipartisanship. So great, if Joe Biden can get these people on board for 600 billion of new money, great. There's 3.5 trillion on the table without the Republicans. That's there. They've said now that if they don't get Republicans by Monday, they're going to add the 600 billion to the 3.5 trillion, which will give us 4.1 trillion, which is a good amount of money. I would like to see more, but it's a good amount of money. If you take 4.1 trillion, you add it to the 2 trillion from the American Rescue Plan. That's 6 trillion in six months. John, I was on a fan. That's of a lot Biden. of money. I mean, that's you're talking real money now. Uh, I was not a fan of Joe <laughs> Biden, uh, as you may know, during the primary season. If you'd come to me a year, year and a half ago and said, Joe Biden will deliver $6 trillion, Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer will deliver $6 trillion in the first six months, I would have laughed in your face. So I will take that $6 trillion and I will say that's a win. Uh, however, that $6 trillion is delivered. I wouldn't have believed you if you told me that a President Bernie Sanders or President Elizabeth Warren would have been able to deliver six yes. trillion dollars, even though they probably wanted to. Like that's just I never would have imagined. That. No, no, I, I agree. And if they can get this little bipartisan hard infrastructure done, if they, you know, for me it's like you know if that's if that's what makes you happy, go for it. Like if that's what's going to make Joe Biden happy, if that's what's going to make the authors of Politico playbook happy, fine, get get the, get get it done. I don't give a damn. I would rather see it done in a partisan way. As Bernie put it the other day, I prefer partisan bills to bipartisan because you get more money in them. Yeah, no, I think I think even more than Joe Biden, the whole this whole fucking charade is to please Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema so they can say, okay, we got our bipartisan deal. Now we're ready for the three point five trillion. I have some concern that if the bipartisan deal falls apart, most Democrats will try to add the money to the reconciliation bill, but Manchin and Cinema might say, hold on, hold on. 3.5 might be fine. 4.1 might be too much. So I'm like, give them the win and let's move on. The issue will be, who do they blame? The yes. issue will be, whose fault will it be? And this has been the great debate amongst Democrats since January, which is, and this was the Schumer plan, which hasn't quite worked, which is, we will show Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema that Republicans can't be trusted and will block us and won't work with us. And then they will see the light. They will have their kumbaya. They will have their Damascene conversion and they will come over to fixing the filibuster and passing things in a partisan way as was supposed I've never bought that because I've never thought the argument, the problem with cinnamon matching is that they don't get it. They get everything. Yeah. It's just they don't want to. I mean, I don't know if you guys have played the tape. We played the tape on our show that um, uh, more perfect union found of Kirsten Cinema from what, 2011, 2010, when she's going on, she's she's on a brilliant like tear about how Democrats should use reconciliation, ignore Joe Lieberman, forget about the filibuster. You don't need 60 votes. She knows all the arguments. She said them. The former uh, Green Party member who has become the thorn in the side of uh, progressives right now. Um, you mentioned the filibuster. It's an issue uh, near and dear to your heart and mine. Uh, let's listen to Biden's answer on that and voting rights last night. I would go back to that where you have to maintain the floor. You have to stand there and talk and hold the floor. You can't I, just say I understand now. that. But what difference is that if you hold the floor for, you know, a day or a year, what difference does it make? Here's the thing for me, you talked about people, and this is important for people who look like me. My grandmother would sit around when I was a kid, fifth grade, had a fifth grade education. I learned that she couldn't read when, when I was doing my homework. She would tell me stories about people asking her to count the number of jelly beans in the jar, yep. or the soap, and 
So why is protecting the filibuster, is that more important no, than protecting no, voting rights, no. especially for people who fought and died for that? No. It's not. I want to see the United States Congress, the United States Senate, pass S-1 and S-4, the John Lewis Act, get them to my desk so I can sign them. But here's the deal. What I also want to do, I want to make sure we bring along not just all the Democrats. We bring along Republicans who I know know better. They know better than this. Do they know better? So if, <laughs> if I was looking at the glass half full here, I would say that Biden once again endorsed bringing back the talking filibuster, which is a reform. He did make passing reference later to an exception for voting rights. So I guess that's progress. If I was looking at the glass half empty, I'd say, come on, Joe, what the fuck are you waiting for? Uh, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think? What, what's going on there? I'm glass half empty. Look, I've been, as I mentioned a moment ago, I've been very praiseworthy, you know, full of praise for this administration on things they've got right that I didn't think they would get right, especially on the economic front, antitrust front, monopolies front, uh, spending money front checks good tick 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 voting rights is the is the kind of black mark that this administration gets they've talked a good game they have willed the ends but not the means and i for one am deeply frustrated when i see joe biden saying to don lemon well don lemon asked him straight up you can't do it without getting rid of the filibuster and joe biden disagreed he said no and no one asked him well how do you plan to do it he says i want you just played that clip i want to sign s1 and the john lewis bill how does it get to your desk? He gave a great speech in Philly saying, this is the threat to voting rights. But again, no plan. It's all very well saying you support S1. Kirsten Sinema says she supports S1. It's irrelevant what you say you support. The issue is how do you get it done, especially in a place like the Senate filled with all its weird procedures. And as long as you have a 60 vote requirement, you will not get it done. Uh, Biden talks about Republicans who know better. If I was there last night, I'd have said, name them name them on this stage. Because right now there is zero Republican votes for S1. Not even Mitt Romney will come on board for S1. Take the John Lewis voting rights out. There is one Republican vote for it. Lisa Murkowski, she's probably gonna run as an independent next time around anyways. So there are no Republicans supporting these bills, let alone 10. So I think it's an insult to our intelligence now at this point in July to be told again and again by Democratic members of Congress, Democratic senators, the White House, that, oh, we'll get there, we'll pass it, we have a plan. No, there is no plan. Jen Psaki admitted the other day in the White House briefing they don't have a specific strategy, a legislative strategy for getting this done because there isn't one. The only way to get it done is to get rid of the filibuster. The only way to get rid of the filibuster is to get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to agree to that. The only way to get them to agree to that is to put pressure on them, either publicly or privately. To quote Jim Clyburn, do it in a microphone, do it on the phone, just do it. Carve out an exception on the filibuster for voting rights legislation. Right now, today, John, the Brennan Center put out a new report updating how many states have passed bills restricting the right to vote. Think about this. Think about how bizarre this situation is. State legislatures run by Republicans can pass any bill they like by a simple majority taking away voting rights. At a federal level, to pass a bill to stop that, you need 60 votes, including 10 Republicans. That makes no sense. If a Martian landed on planet Earth and you explain that system, they would say, that's bonkers. What are you talking about? Who, who signed up for this? The President of the United States, the Senate Majority Leader. It just makes no sense to me how anyone can think at this point. And by the way, one, one last point on this. It's very dangerous to hear Joe Biden talking about people turning out to vote. Ron Brownstein of The Atlantic has been doing reporting on this, that the White House seems to think privately, despite publicly saying it's an existential threat, it's Jim Crow on steroids, privately they're a bit more relaxed than they're letting on because they think 
that they can out-organize Republican voter suppression, that they can use turnout to get around it, which is nonsense. Number one, in midterms, people don't turn out in record levels, as you know better than me, John, and Joe Biden knows better than both of us. I don't know why he said they'll still turn out in record numbers. They won't, not in 2022. And number two, you can't out, you can't use turnout as a way of getting that, around yes. the gerrymander. Like you can't out-organize a gerrymander. The whole purpose of a gerrymander is you can have 100% turnout, you'll still lose because they designed the district to have more people than your side. So the idea that turnout, and turnout doesn't work against a gerrymander. Turnout doesn't work against election subversion, which he mentioned it weirdly in, in CNN. He goes, oh, for the first time, legislatures are going to overturn the results. Okay, well, if they're going to overturn the results, then turnout's irrelevant, right? Because you could turn out and win it by 10% margin, and they'll just overturn the result claiming fraud. So none of this makes any sense. It's killing me to see how superficial the debate is, even in DC, to see clever people who know better on the Democratic side saying nonsensical, airy, fairy things. And time's running out. Better O'Rourke's made the point. Mid-August, gerrymandering, all of that stuff kicks in, census data, you know, we do not have time on our side. No, look, I'm I'm uh, consistently infuriated by this. Uh, <laughs> I try to put myself in the shoes of the folks in the Biden White House because I, I do believe that they genuinely want to protect voting rights. And, you know, you sort of heard him last night be like, well, if if I we talk, if I come out against the filibuster, then this whole debate is about the filibuster and it's not about voting rights. And that's what Republican wants, which sounds like some kind of nonsense that a political advisor would, would tell you. But I don't understand why Joe Biden just doesn't say, um, OK, Here's what I want. I want Joe Manchin and, and, and the Democrats in the Senate and everyone to put together a bill that just does three things, protects the right to vote, um, stops gerrymandering and prevents election subversion. Everything else you can you can put on the you put on the cutting room floor. Those are the three most important things, right, to get rid of voting restrictions and do those other things. And then I want you to either find me the 10 Republicans who are going to support that. Or if not, it's time to get rid of the filibuster. Right. Like I like at that point, like I actually do believe that it's really tough for public pressure or pressure from Joe Biden to change Joe Manchin's mind or Kirsten Sinema's mind. Like at the end of the day, they're senators. They're going to do what they want. But my question is, why not try? Why not try? And then if you and then if you fail, you fail. You know, like what is what's the backlash at that point? They're going to be so mad. I mean, we're failing right now. We're failing right now. Uh, and when uh, there's another line Biden said last night, he said, which kind of reveals that his, you know, his heart's not in this. He's closer to Joe Manchin than he is to Elizabeth Warren on the filibuster. Let's be honest about that. He's never been a fan of getting, he's, you know, he's a preacher of the Senate, four decades, whatever it is. And he said last night when Don Lemon pushed him in a very personal way, saying, you know, I'm black, my grandmother couldn't vote, et cetera, et cetera. What does Biden say? He goes, you know, what, why would you keep this? And he says, because if we get rid of it, there'll be chaos. What does that mean? The Senate's going to run around with no clothes on it. What, what chaos is going to happen in DC that's worse than the death of democracy. He is worried about Mitch McConnell's threat to completely grind the Senate to a halt if this happens, to use all these procedures to like make sure, you know, deny people quorum and all this bullshit, which again, Mitch McConnell can try, but Chuck Schumer's the majority leader. And so it exactly. may delay business quite a bit, but Chuck Schumer could also change more rules to sort of stop them from grinding it to a halt. We have the power here. <laughs> also, also, I, I think we're undervaluing the pressure argument. I would argue that the listeners of Pod Save America and the viewers of my show on MSNBC and Peacock, yeah, they follow this stuff and they get it. The average American, if I went up, if I went and asked my, I don't know, one of my friends who's not political or a family member, who's not, what is the filibuster? 
They don't have a clue. What is no, budget don't. reconciliation? They've never heard those two words put together in their life, right? This is a DC media political thing. If you go to an average American and say, do you think majority 51 people should be able to vote in favor of something and 49 people lose? I think they will accept that point. I think if you go to the American people and say, you know what, they just lost a bipartisan bill on a uh, on the one six commission, it was lost. What was the vote? Fifty four to thirty five. If you go to an American and say, "Should fifty four people lose to thirty five people?" I think they'll say, "No, they shouldn't." And I think that is the argument that Joe Biden should be using for the bully pulpit. If his heart was in this, if he understood how anti democratic the filibuster is and how we need to get rid of it, I believe he could make that argument. They've made the argument on the economy, on COVID, on vaccinations. They've done a full court press on Capitol Hill in, to get the bipartisan infrastructure deal. We have not seen that public pressure. We've not seen the campaign. And I think Adam Jensen, who I'm sure you've had on the show many times, uh, former advisor to Senate Majority Leader, he makes the point, you know, no one's asking him to go and win over Mitch McConnell. We're asking him to win over a couple of people on his own side who are already kind of on the fence and claim they support voting rights. They are susceptible. I'm not saying it'll work, as you say. It might fail. But what is the alternative? We're in the midst of the greatest attack of democracy in my lifetime. What, yeah. What's the alternative? I mean, you mentioned voters. We talked about this last week. The largest pro-Biden super PAC just did a bunch of focus groups on a whole range of issues. They asked them about the filibuster. And the people who were conducting the focus group said they were even surprised that even some of the more moderate swing voters, even to some like somewhat conservative voters, were completely fine with getting rid of the filibuster once they were explained what it was. Well, and once they told them that, like, shouldn't shouldn't a simple majority be able to pass legislation? Yes. They were like, of course. I mean, it's the most basic American idea, like a simple majority. The idea that, that I don't think people understand that you mean you need 10 Republicans to pass a popular agenda. It makes no sense. And, and what's, to come back to come full circle. It is deeply frustrating to see the president of the United States who spent four decades in the Senate, who claims this is a huge attack on democracy, saying on live TV that no, we don't have to get rid of the filibuster to get this done. If Donald Trump said that, I would say it was gaslighting. It is gaslighting. He knows it has to be got rid of to get done. We all know it has to be. There's simply no other way S1 reaches his desk than without some change to the filibuster. Let's just be honest about that, please. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Our front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. Uh, okay, let's talk about the other big story in politics this week. The battle for the soul of the Republican Party, which uh, Republicans with the soul have been losing for some time now. But over the last few days, we've heard a surprising number of Republican politicians and pundits push back on the anti-vax conspiracies being peddled by people like Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Here's a clip. These shots need to get in everybody's arm as rapidly as possible. Or we're going to be back in a situation in the fall that we don't yearn for that we went through last year. Please take COVID seriously. I can't say it enough. Enough people have died. We don't need any more death. Research like crazy. Talk to your doctor, your doctors, medical professionals you trust based on your unique medical history, your current medical condition, and you and your doctor make a very important decision for your own safety. Take it seriously. You also have a right to medical privacy. Doctor-patient confidentiality is also important. And it absolutely makes sense for many Americans to get vaccinated. These vaccines are 
saving lives. They are reducing mortality. But if you really want to stop this nonsense at the CDC, just get vaccinated. Why do you think that the Delta variant has caused so many Republicans to start singing the vaccine's praise after months of either pushing vaccine conspiracies or saying nothing while they spread? It's a good question. I don't know the answer, actually. I genuinely am finding these last couple of days amusing and intriguing did a memo go out? Like, it's across the board. It's Republican senators. It's governors. Very coordinated. It's Fox. Uh, there's been a little bit of back pushback on Fox. You saw Tucker Carlson and Charlie Kirk basically subtweeting Sean Hannity on the show, like mocking people who are virtue signaling and trying to do this. It's weird. I don't know what's happened. Did they all just get like a poll that came out that they were shared? Did they get a lawsuit? It's very, very odd. It's welcome. It's clearly welcome, but it's very odd. I would just say one thing, John, you mentioned kind of the, the, the struggle for the soul of the Republican Party. I personally have tried to push back in my own in my own writing when I'm writing scripts for my show. Like we all fought, we all immediately put into this battle for the Republican Party, Liz Cheney, et cetera. And it's like, there is no battle for the Republic. It, it, there is. It's, no, they it's lost. done. I mean, it was won a long time lost. ago. What battle? I know people in DC and, you know, political playbook types and, you know, people in green rooms. We want to, like, believe this because we meet people from the Lincoln Project and it's wonderful. But the reality is, let's just do real world stuff. Let's not lie to ourselves. There is no battle. I mean, the battle was lost when Donald Trump beat 17 or 16 top Republican candidates in 2016. The battle was lost when he praised neo-Nazis and Republicans did nothing. The battle was lost when only Mitt Romney voted to convict last year. The battle was lost when, you know, the majority of Republicans voted to overturn the election in the House in January. When more Republicans voted for him in 2020 than in 2016. Stop telling me there is a civil war in the Republican yeah. Party. It's the weirdest <laughs> civil war I've ever seen when only one side wins all the time. Um, all the remember, time. I'm old enough to remember, John, when Liz Cheney survived her vote. Remember that a few months ago? And people were telling me, see, <laughs> see, Republicans saved Liz Cheney. And then she was then fired a few months later. It's like, come on, let's stop this BS. And I think Kevin McCarthy taking his toys and going home is a reminder of that. I think Donald Trump having these pilgrimages to Mar-a-Lago uh, is a reminder of that. I think Ron DeSantis, who you just played, the fact that if Donald Trump doesn't run in 2024, the favorite is Ron DeSantis, a mini Trump, a man who came to prominence building a Lego wall with his kid as part of his campaign. I think that tells you everything you need to know about the GOP. But look, if some of them are going to shift a bit on vaccines, great, because we all know, John, no matter what you and I say on our platforms about vaccines, no matter what Joe Biden says on a CNN town hall about vaccines, they're not listening, right? Nobody, they're only going to listen if people on their side tell them to do it. So hopefully there will be some, although, you know, it's a very low bar. Sean Hannity didn't say go out and get vaccinated. He just said, I believe in the science. And then he undermined other policies right. like going door to door and having mandatory vaccines. So it's a battle. You still have people like Madison Cawthorn saying if somebody comes to your door, they're coming to steal your gun or your Bible. You still have Marjorie Taylor Greene being suspended from Twitter this week for vaccine disinformation. She She's not some fringe figure. She's one of the highest fundraisers in the Republican Party right now, sadly. So Donald Trump, the most important Republican in America today, he's heading more into the disinformation territory on vaccines. He put out a statement saying, well, they don't trust the results of the election. So they don't trust, I mean, the man's, I mean, the, you have to admire his message discipline. He even makes vaccines about his defeat in the election. Like, he's like, they didn't trust the election <laughs> results, so they don't trust vaccines. Like, I just, it's bizarre how, how his, his deflection is to the election. So unless you get Trump shifting, unless you get Fox across the board, like, I would argue, maybe again, this is me being pessimist, glass half full. You can take your Sean Hannity's, you can take your Mitch McConnell's, Ron DeSantis's, 
put them up against Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson, all the crazies on Facebook. I don't know. I'm not sure we're anywhere near where we should be in terms of right-wing tipping points. No, we're not at all. And I mean, look, I think it's welcome that some of Republicans are having a change of heart. Um, I don't know why either. I don't know if it's a poll or just the very simple fact that their voters are dying. I mean, their voters right? have been their dying all this time. Like, they didn't give a damn before. It, right. But it's like, you know, it's hitting it's hitting red states and unvaccinated populations particularly hard. And they are overwhelmingly Republican and, and overwhelmingly conservative. So I think that, that you know, they need those voters at some point. Um but look, I, I also think that on the Democratic side, what we need to do is, I don't know what you were just saying, is do what Republicans would do in this situation, which is keep pushing them even further. OK, that's nice that you said you believe in vaccinations. That's nice yeah. that you say, oh, people should get vaccinated. The next step is to call out your fellow Republicans and Republican pundits for the misinformation that they're yeah. spreading. Make Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy call out Marjorie Taylor Greene for her misinformation. Make them call out Tucker Carlson. Make Sean Hannity call out Tucker Carlson, right? Like, but I think we need to kind do of, that, this is sort of. Sadly, right. No, no, no. They're, they're not going to do it. But to do that. that is the fundamental problem. No, they're all not. Of our political issues. Who's going to make them do that on vaccines? Who's going to make them do it on insurrection? Who's going to make it's the, it's the question of our time. It is. It, but it's, it's back to sort of the point uh, you were bringing up Brian Boitler's tweet on this, which is, you know, he, he saw Mitch McConnell saying this and said, oh, I think this shows the culture war is winnable and not just for partisan gain, but to make Republicans pay for it and stop doing sociopathic, yes. sociopathic things. I think when we hear this, that, that Democrats and progressives in the media and people need to push harder, not to say like, great job, you all get a gold star. We, we, thanks for coming over, being pro-vaccine. Great. Like, no, 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 no. This isn't enough at all. Yeah. You need to call out all the bullshit that's happening on your side or fuck off. I mean... I'll give you one example of the culture war stuff where the Democrats always drop the ball, as do people in the media, uh, where Republicans pass a bill in Texas basically saying you don't need to teach Martin Luther King anymore. You don't need to say the KKK is immoral. Did you see Did you right. see any congressional reporter running down to Holloway after a Republican member of Congress saying, do you agree with that? Running after Kevin McCarthy asking for a comment. Can you imagine if the Democrats had done some version of that at a state level? I mean, it's amazing how, and that again, whether we like it or not, elite media takes its cues from elite politicians. And therefore, it is on members yeah. of the Democratic Party to say, this is a story, this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the Texas bill. We're going to talk about the fact that, on you know, why is every member of Congress this morning, every Democratic member of Congress not going out on TV and putting out a statement saying that every Republican should demand Tucker Carlson apologize to Officer Harry Dunn? for calling him not a police right. officer, yes. but an angry left-wing political activist. Put aside the racial stereotype of the angry black man. The idea that Tucker Carlson, the highest rated host on the right, the man who all Republican politicians go on his show, why are they not all being asked to call out Tucker Carlson? If Rachel Maddow on my network had come out and said, you know, a certain police officer is not a police officer, whatever it is, in, in another context, can you imagine what the Republicans would be doing right now? They would say Democrats should not be able to go on that show anymore. They should call her out. We want a statement from Biden, a statement from Pelosi. But whose fault is this, from, John? Yeah. Where, are the, where are the House Democrats? Yeah, no, how know. many House Democrats? Are there 200 plus House Democrats today. Where are they? What are they doing today? Whatever yeah. they're doing, I can tell you no, it's not I... as important as coming out and fighting and winning these culture wars because the culture wars aren't going anywhere. This Democratic strategy of we're going to talk about kitchen table issues. Sorry, that's not 2014. Like, that's not happening. 
Well, it's not a it's not a public opinion issue either. I guarantee if you polled, uh, should schools be banned from teaching about Martin Luther King Jr.? Like I, I know I don't need a poll for that. I know how that would come down. Should, should twenty Republicans not give the gold star, congressional gold medal to Capitol Police officers? I don't need a poll for that. Yeah, again, I I'm think sure I don't need right the poll for that. Ninety percent left and right. I think it'll be North Korean style results to that kind of poll. <laughs> so the other loony bullshit from Republicans this week, which you referenced, uh, came from House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who requested to fill three of the five Republican seats on the select panel investigating the January 6th attacks with House members who voted to further the insurrectionist goal of overturning the election results. Jim Jordan, Jim Banks and Troy Nels. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi responded by rejecting Jordan and Banks, which she has the power to do. McCarthy then responded by pulling all five members from the committee, leaving the Pelosi-appointed Liz Cheney as the sole Republican on the panel for now, though there's news reports this morning that Pelosi may also appoint Republican Adam Kinzinger. Uh, Cheney told reporters that she's supportive of Pelosi's decision and then said this. Any uh, person who would be third in line to the presidency must demonstrate a commitment to the Constitution and a commitment to the rule of law. Uh, And uh, Minority Leader McCarthy has not done that. Uh, Why do you think Pelosi... Put her foot down on this. I'm amazed. I've been someone who's been very critical of Nancy Pelosi for not putting her foot down more when it comes to Republican extremism in particular. And I was disappointed a couple of days ago when she said, well, voting against the election, that's not going to be a a deal breaker. And then within 24, 36 hours, she came out and chucked two of the three off. And she said in a press conference today that she didn't throw them off because they voted against the election, because she kept Troy Nails on, the freshman congressman who did vote against Yeah, them. which is confusing. Which is confusing. Me, and but... Republicans have jumped on that as well to say, well, what is it then? And, but I think Liz Cheney said something very interesting, not in the clip you played, but in the wider conversation. She said, you cannot have two people, one of whom is a material witness to what happened, and the other of whom made comments clearly wanting to sabotage the inquiry. And again, it's sad that it requires Liz Cheney to be doing the oppo stuff. Like, where are the 200 House Democrats <laughs> making this point? Why did I have to hear it from Liz Cheney? But she's right. It's a point that's been under-discussed, which is Jim Jordan was at a meeting in the White House on December 21st with Donald Trump, with um, with the other Repub- with a lot of the other Republican crazies. Um, and at that meeting, they discussed how to overturn the election and what the plan should be for January the 6th. So if you're at a meeting where you're discussing January the 6th, yeah, you should not be investigating that meeting. That's just basics. I'm not sure why Liz Cheney's making that point and it's not in an official statement from Pelosi or from House Democrats doing media rounds. I don't get it. Again, maybe Democrats just don't do politics very well. I mean, Banks uh, suggested that it was the Biden administration's fault January 6th, that the attacks were actually the fault of the Biden administration. He also said, why are we not investigating the left? So that's the other point of Liz Cheney, which is one guy is a material witness, Jim Jordan, and the other guy, Banks, did come out yesterday and say, well, I don't agree with this committee because it needs to investigate the left. So yeah, you shouldn't be on the committee if you don't agree to the terms of the committee. And in general, like this whole DC, and I know a lot of people are upset on social media today with Politico Playbook email this morning saying, well, this is a great, this is really bad. It's not, it's not. Yeah, well, I'm yeah, one of same. them. I'm one this, of them. <laughs> this idea that it should have been bipartisan and Nancy Pelosi has given a win to the Republicans. This is not rocket science. This is not both sides. If you're investigating an insurrection, you don't put pro-insurrection people on the investigating committee. This is not rocket science. Uh, you know, if you're investigating 9-11, you wouldn't put people who say 9-11 was an inside job or the towers never came down on the committee investigating 9-11. This is not hard. And I don't understand why more Democrats are not saying this stuff. Adam Smith, 
to be fair, chair of the House Armed Services Committee did say it on my show yesterday, he made the 9-11 point. But just like more of them should be pointing out that Jim Jordan is a material witness. A lot of these Republicans, we don't know what ties they had to the insurrection. We don't know about the supposed tours that were given to insurrections. That's an allegation that's been made. We don't know what conversations were had with the White House. We only found out that Mo Brooks spoke at the rally on the ellipse when he said, you know, kick ass, take names. We only found out that the White House told him to give that speech after he was sued and he came out and gave that as his defense, that he was on federal government business. So what conversations were had between the White House and members of Congress? What conversations were had between members of Congress and insurrectionists? Yeah, I would rather not have the accused members of Congress as part of the investigation. Sue me. Yeah, crazy idea, right? Uh, I, I do want to ask you a media question about this. You know, so, so Playbook writes this morning, that Republicans who voted to overturn the election have a, quote, legitimate grievance now, and that Pelosi's move will, quote, make the investigation even easier to dismiss for people who aren't diehard members of Team Blue. My question is, how are these supposedly smart reporters so easily duped by some of the dumbest fucking politicians on the planet? Well, what, what do you think's going on It's there? a combo of two things, I think. One is, it is just being duped by, you know, their sources and the fact that they have, you know, they're friendly with Republicans, and that's just the reality. They don't see the Republicans in an objective way as many others, as random members of the public do, perhaps. Um, and number two, I think it is, I think it is a sense of, this is how we do journalism. It is both sides. And we thought, some, some people naively thought that an insurrection an armed, violent insurrection in which members of Congress were almost attacked and killed, in which a New York Times journalist, photographer, was beaten to the ground, right? J fellow members of the press, there's always a joke, right, that journalists only take things seriously when they're at risk. Well, these are your colleagues were at risk on January 6th, were, were running also from the insurrectionists. And yet that happens, and six months later, as you say, the legitimate grievance is the pro-insurrection party complaining that they don't get to be on the insurrection investigation. Don't forget, by the way, there was an opportunity for a bipartisan commission. Nancy Pelosi offered that. Schumer offered it. They turned it down. And I'm so fed up of every development in Washington, D.C. being seen as, this is bad for the Democrats. It's never seen as bad for the Republicans. It's baked in that Republicans are bad. We have such a, you know, it's the Trump thing of grading on a curve. We as a media have got so used to Republican bad faith that, that, you know, it's 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 dog bites man. It's like, we just take it for granted. Oh, Mitch McConnell blocks something outrageous. But that's what Mitch McConnell does, right? No, that's not what we should expect from the Senate minority leader. It's not what we expected in the past. We have, we have given these people a pass because we just assume, it's really weird. We go, we say to ourselves, these are really bad, bad faith, obstructionist people. So it kind of makes sense that they're doing that. And then because of that, the bad, bad faith people get away with it. It just makes no sense. It's so frustrating to see this. And also, we we journalists, we are not bystanders. We are part of the story. So when we say, oh, the perception is that this will be seen as one-sided, who's doing right. the perceiving? <laughs> well, it also shows you how useless it is to have, uh, you know, a, and I'm glad she's on our side on this, but to have a Liz Cheney or an Adam Kinzinger, right? Because you think, okay... They're siding with the Democrats, so now it's bipartisan. So reporters will understand it's bipartisan now. But reporters have decided that it doesn't count 
that Liz Cheney is on the panel, that it doesn't count that Adam Kinzinger is going to be on the panel, that it doesn't count that they're going to have a bunch of Republican staffers on the. Yeah. She's 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 no she's no longer a member of Congress who voted 97 percent of the time by her own account with Donald Trump. She's no longer the daughter of the former vice president of the United States. She's no longer a longstanding right wing neoconservative hawk. Suddenly now she's a flaming liberal because Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan say so. And we must take their word. And, we, and now I mean, we can't count her. Problem. We can't and count I, her as bipartisan anymore. Like we can't count her as part of our bipartisan. No, because that's the rule. That, them be the rules. We didn't make them. <laughs> and it's just so ridiculous. And just to put just one thing, John, nothing, nothing with the greatest respect, like you're saying we the Democrats. Right. You work for Barack Obama. You're a Democrat. You raise money for Democratic. I'm not a Democrat, right? I like a lot of Democratic policies. I would have preferred, I'm very open on this from a personal point of view, not speaking on behalf of any employer, I'd have preferred uh, for Donald Trump not to have won the election. was glad when he didn't. Um, But the reality is, this isn't even about, we shouldn't even fall into the trap this is about Democrat-Republican. Because then the the, the both sides, journalists as well, would say, see, that's why we're taking a middle position. This is not about right and left. It's about right and wrong. It's about truth and falsehood. This is about an armed insurrection that, you know, the people who attacked the Congress were not going to check and see who was a Republican or a Democrat journalist, who was a conservative or a liberal journalist when they did the attacking. So for me, it's not even about party politics. It's about, you know, I, I said it, I think I said it on this show. Let me say it again. I think I said it on this show to Tommy. I'm going to say it one more time. The job of a journalist, if somebody says it's raining outside and somebody says it's not raining outside, is not to say one person says it's raining, the other person says it's not raining. The job of a journalist is to open the freaking window and put their head outside and check if it's <laughs> raining, right? So that same applies in the context of investigating in the yeah. No, it, it, it certainly should. And you're right. It, the, the, the proper frame for this is a, a battle to sort of save and preserve democracy and, and the people who are on that side versus the people who are uh, antithetical to <laughs> to the preservation exactly. of democracy and who are small, small d-, d yeah exactly yeah, big forgot d democrats it's all totally about small agree. d democrats we are all supposedly small right. d democrats and that is and that is the better frame for it um uh, so there's a new cbs poll out uh, 67% of americans describe the attack on the capitol as trying to overturn the election 56% of americans describe it as an insurrection but a little over half of all trump voters describe it as defending freedom and patriotism <laughs> what's your reaction to those numbers first of all I-, I talked about it on the show last night on peacock it's sickening I mean, first of all, I've watched a lot of footage, as I'm sure you have, of the actual insurrection. Some of the stuff that uh, obviously the House impeachment managers played, some of the stuff that came out at the time. Uh, I've interviewed Capitol Police officers on my show uh, who were injured badly in the attack. I've interviewed Brian Sicknick's mother and partner on my MSNBC show and spoken to them about that tragedy in their family. It's disgusting to see so supposedly patriotic Americans who claim to be the party of law and order and Blue Lives Matter saying stuff like this was about defending freedom. And partly you could say, well, they're not to blame. They've imbibed all this propaganda from Fox News, from Donald Trump saying it was a love fest, from Ron Johnson saying these were patriots, from uh, Andrew Clyde saying these were just normal tourists. So that's the kind of propaganda they've imbibed. But I'm sorry, these people have agency. It's disgusting. Uh, you, it's not hard to find video from the attack. Yeah. There's so much of it now coming out. Scott McFarlane, NBC uh, investigative reporter in DC, just showed his Twitter timeline. He has all these videos coming out of the court cases. They are horrifying to watch, horrifying. You listen to Michael Fanone talking about what happened to him, the officer. So it's disgusting is my first response to that poll. Uh, it's, and then my second response from a purely political angle is win the culture war. Yeah. I mean, look at the polling. 67%. I'm just going to read it out here again. I know you just said it. So again, 67% say it was trying to turn over a turn election. One in three Trump voters say it wasn't. 
More than half of Americans say it was an insurrection. One in five Trump voters say it was. Um, in terms of investigating, three quarters say we need to know more about what happened. So the polling is very clear. This is a very straightforward culture wars issue. America was attacked. Capitol Hill was attacked. Police officers were attacked. And the majority of Americans think that was really bad and something should be done. The minority of Americans who are represented by one of our two political parties think it wasn't that bad, think it was actually kind of good, and think we don't need to know anything more. That's an easy battle to win. I right? mean, I don't understand why. And Joe Biden, to be fair, is good on this issue, but he was last night. But it just needs to be full court press. Like, this is a party that is anti-police, anti-law enforcement. You know, I happen to be someone who supports the idea of defunding the police, right? I have, that's my personal political position. But from a pure partisan perspective, if I wasn't a journalist with my own opinions and I was someone saying to one side of a political divide, what should be done here? It's not rocket science. The party that does actually support police officers who are under attack should be attacking the other party who claims to support police officers. Like This is not hard. The definition of a wedge issue is an issue that unites your party and splits the other party. And this this issue of whether it was an insurrection or whether they were trying to overturn the election, the, the, the entire t- attack on democracy from Trump and his forces is an issue that unites our party, splits the other party, and probably we have a vast majority of independents on our side as well. Which makes me think, again, as we head into 2022, 2024 and beyond, we should not forget this issue. This should be front and center. I, you know, I'm someone who, who oh, completely, completely agrees with the idea that economic issues are important and kitchen table issues are important. And I think Democrats should talk about them. And I think people really care about them. They care about their material well-being, improving their life. But yes. it's not sufficient. And this is the issue of the day. This is the existential issue that we face right now, right? Exactly. It, it's also, yeah, as you say, not just not sufficient. I was about to say existential. You beat me to it. It's the existential issue of our time. Because let's be honest, you can't go into 2022, 2024. This is part of the election, right? Let's not forget. This is not... This is not a poll that came out about is Barack Obama born right. in Kenya or not, which was the first inkling that these people have lost their minds and deplorables is an understatement, right? That was already, we already saw that they were conspiracy theorists. They were susceptible to mad racist lies. This is actually about democracy itself. So it's not just these people are bonkers. It's these people are bonkers and could destroy the yeah. whole damn thing. So let's be clear. If 55% of Trump voters say that the insurrectionists were defending freedom, Next time round, John, and there will be a next time. Next time round, there's an attempt on the election. Next time round, there's an attack on the Capitol. Next time round, there's an armed violent insurrection. There's not going to be even an impeachment trial. There's not even going to be a Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, or Lindsey Graham calling out Trump for 24 hours. Nothing. Because next time round, the base will not just be okay with it. They'll yep. be demanding it. I mean, this is what Stephen, uh, this is what um, Daniel Ziblatt and Steve Levitsky, the political scientist who wrote How Democracies Die, they wrote this Atlantic essay a couple of weeks ago. I urge everyone to go read it. This is the point they make. But next time round, Republican politicians won't be saying, well, what do I do to speak out against this? To be fair, a lot of them did speak out after Jan 6 and then went quiet. Next time round, they won't even do that because everything keeps moving. The Overton window keeps moving on the right. Next time around, it'll be like, oh, I need to get behind yep. this insurrection. Next time around, you won't see Kevin McCarthy ringing Donald Trump saying, stop it. You'll see Kevin McCarthy jumping in front of the crowd saying, let's go, because that way is the future of the Republican Party. Pure authoritarianism and yep. neo-fascism. Uh, Mehdi, before I let you go, I do want to turn your attention to one minor but critical victory in the fight against fascism from someone I always knew would come through for us, just like he has in seven Super Bowls. Let's take a listen. Not a lot of people... Uh, you know, think that we could have won. And um, in fact, I think about 40% of the people still don't think we won. 
understand that. You understand that, Mr. President? I understand that. Yeah. And personally, you know, it's nice for me to be back here. We had a game in Chicago where I forgot what down it was. I lost track of one down in 21 years of playing. And they started calling me Sleepy Tom. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall for when Donald Trump saw that clip, which you know that he has by now. <laughs> oh, yes. So I'm not a big follower of American football, partly because I only became an American last year. And for me, football is still right. what you call soccer. Uh, and, you, and you actually kick it with your feet. So it's bizarre. I've never understood American football. Um, but the Tom Brady thing was hilarious, just from the Trump perspective. He did it on purpose. It was very well delivered. Joe Biden's response was very well delivered. And I feel like the thing about Donald Trump, those of us who have followed him sadly for years is last this last week, those the two most painful things to happen to Donald Trump is number one, Tom Brady dissing him at the White House. Yep. That must have killed him. That must have killed him more than anything else. Vaccinations, democracy, the election. That, that must have destroyed him. And number two, the Biden administration reversed the Trump administration's policy on shower restrictions oh, yeah. and water pressure. That was a remember, big that deal. Was very close to Donald Trump's heart. It was a big deal. He made a lot of his election rallies all about multiple rallies of talking about shower pressure and toilet flushes. So, you know, that's the reality we live in today, that the guy who might be the next Republican presidential candidate is probably crying himself to sleep at night because Tom Brady dissed him and his flush is not as powerful as he <laughs> Little victories. We'll take them. Uh, Mehdi, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining as always. Everyone, please go check out uh, the Mehdi Hassan Show on Peacock and MSNBC. Peacock is very easy to sign up for. I just did it myself a couple weeks ago. Great programming and a, a fantastic show from, from Mehdi each night. So go check it out. Thank uh, you. When we come back, my interview with Equis Labs co-founder Stephanie Valencia about immigration and other issues on the minds of Latino voters. got enough to do already i do that's why i use ship same day delivery to keep up with my busy life they know the snacks i like down to the extra creamy in my peanut butter i can get deliveries at home on set or even when i'm away on vacay and my personal shopper amber she's got my back as in she asked them to check the back if it's not on the shelf shipped delight in every delivery learn more at ship.com slash hi Welcome back. Last week, an ultra-conservative judge in Texas ruled that the Department of Homeland Security can no longer approve new DACA applicants, that the decision doesn't affect the 650,000 DREAMers already enrolled in the program. Meanwhile, Democrats in Congress are putting together an economic plan that includes a path to legalization and green cards for certain DREAMers and other undocumented immigrants, something that President Biden addressed last night during his town hall. Here's a clip. You're five years old. You're nine years old. Your mom or your dad says, I'm going to take you across the Rio Grande and we're illegally going to go into the United States. What are you supposed to say? Not me. I said, against the law. I'm, no, no, I'm, being, I'm being deadly earnest. What could a kid say? What could they do? They come here with really no choice. And they're here and they're good, good people. They've done well. 10,000 of them were first-line workers. These are kids who've done well. And so what we're going to do is, first of all, appeal the case, number one. But number two, we're going to make sure that a number of my Republican colleagues say they support the right of dreamers to come. Let's call the question. They should be able to stay in the United States of America. 
Here to talk about how Latino voters are thinking about immigration and a host of other issues, the co-founder of the polling firm Equis Research and my former colleague from the Obama White House, Stephanie Valencia. Stephanie, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much for having me. So with the very important stipulation that Latino voters, like all groups of voters, have a diverse set of views that go well beyond prioritizing the issue of immigration, what have you heard from folks in your latest research about everything from the situation at the border to some of this DACA news we've been hearing lately? Well, certainly, as you mentioned, um, I have always called immigration a gateway issue for Latinos. It's like that threshold issue for Latinos to really understand, does this politician see us as a threat to this country as Donald Trump did? Or does this uh, politician see us as a net positive and a contributor to this country? So the issue of immigration, while it never polls as like the number one issue that Latinos want to act on, because that usually is the economy, healthcare, education, or other things. It is always a gateway issue for which we view how politicians view us. And so we're at this really critical moment right now. Um, John, you and I worked at the White House when um, we did DACA after many failed attempts, many failed attempts of trying to actually pass the Dream Act in Congress. Um, and you know, DACA is ten years old now. It has survived multiple attempts um, to uh, to take it down. Um, we've survived survived a really important one last summer. And here we are again um, with DACA under attack and, and hundreds of thousands of immigrant youth um, who have lived their life as President Biden just laid out, came here under no fault of their own um, and who have lived their life here in their entirety. I think there's a, a huge conversation we're having about immigration in this country right now, particularly after the pandemic and the role that farm workers also played in um, our economic recovery as the role that essential workers play in keeping our economy alive and the kind of as we go into this next phase of, of as our population changes um, as we get older as a country we need more workers and so there's actually a very big question right now about how we think about immigration it's also intersecting right now with the conversation around what's happening in Haiti and in Cuba and how we receive uh, refugees whether they're coming and fleeing violence in Central America or whether they are um, coming and fleeing political um, you know political challenges challenges in their home countries, like in Haiti and in Cuba right now. So there's a big conversation about what we do about immigration right now. DACA is a really important part of that. Um, and the president has actually been really clear that, um, you know, what is happening in Congress, we want Congress to act and to actually deliver once and for all some finality um, to these people's lives. And there's a really interesting opportunity and moment in Congress right now with the budget reconciliation package to actually include a legalization provision for DACA recipients, certain TPS holders, potentially farm workers and other um, and other categories of workers, maybe even essential workers. People like Joe Manchin, um, who are very moderate, have actually come out and said that they support its inclusion uh, in um, the reconciliation bill. Um, so that's a lot of like forward progress on actually getting this issue done once and for all. So coming back to how Latino voters think about the issue, um, you know, again, it is one of those things that is never going to be one of the top issues for them, but want to see it resolved once and for all. There, it's been 10 years since we did DACA. There's like a high level of appetite to see Democrats deliver. Latino voters in this country know that Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they are ready to see Democrats deliver. They've waited 10 years for action on this issue, 
And this is an opportunity for Democrats to show that with power, they can deliver. So again, this like what's happening in Congress right now with the reconciliation package offers a pathway to certainty for uh, DACA recipients and potential other immigrants um, that could help to move this issue forward and kind of take it off the table for a while. My message to congressional Democrats is like deal with this now because then we can have a conversation with Latino voters on issues that are really, really important like education and what we're doing on the economic recovery and healthcare and free community college. Those bread and butter issues that we often don't get to talk about with them because the issue of immigration always sucks the oxygen out of the room. So Biden was asked about this and in including uh, immigration reform in the reconciliation bill. And he said, um, you know, he supports it. But he also said that's for the parliamentarian to decide, not for Joe Biden to decide. Knowing what you know about the Latino electorate, how would you be advising the president to handle this upcoming fight over immigration if you were back in the White House right now? Yeah, I mean, I think there has, you know, the, the parliamentarian is the most outside of Joe Manchin is probably the second most powerful person in Washington right now. Yeah, um, because she will decide ultimately what ends up in this budget reconciliation package. And what's interesting about her background, you know, she's technically a nonpartisan, she's a appointee, she's not really um, supposed to have like a partisan side, and she's supposed to kind of call balls and strikes as they are based on law and constitutionality of and, and how the Senate works. Um, she is interestingly formerly an immigration lawyer. So it can either potentially play in her career. Early in her career, she was an immigration lawyer in New Jersey. Um, so on the one hand, she could be potentially more sympathetic um, to immigration being included. On the other hand, she knows the law better than most um, or immigration law better than most. And so that could also play against us. Who knows? Um, but I think the case that needs to be made is like Democrats need to act. And if for whatever reason, you know, President Biden doesn't control her, Senator Schumer doesn't control her. So a lot about whether this gets included in the immigration reconciliation is in her hands. Should it not make it in because she rules that way, we have to, we as Democrats have to make a strong case on action legislatively as soon as possible, especially for DACA, given this new kind of legal um, turmoil that it is now in um, and the kind of, um, you know, uncertainty that so many people's lives have been tossed in. There, there needs to be a backup plan to move quickly on legislation at least including DACA, TPS holders, potentially farm workers and essential workers, which really addresses a lot of, um, kind of the undocumented population in this country today. And I'll bring it back to my first point, which is like there is a huge economic case to be made for this in this country, given the future of our workforce and the need for kind of younger, um, less skilled labor. Um, and keeping our economy running. Um, and so there's an economic case to be made for it. Um, for you know many of these categories of workers, there's a lot of support in the business community. There's support, um, so they have a certainty around the workforce. Um, there's support among evangelicals and the Catholic church. So there's a huge faith-based component to it. And there's always been a huge law enforcement kind of support for this because um, you know they want to be able to prioritize um, criminals and real crime in communities and create a safe space so immigrants feel like they can report crimes in their community. So this diverse coalition that has been built over the last, you know, 10, 15 years around support for immigration reform needs to continue to make that really important case uh, for it. And Democrats need to show that they can deliver uh, legislatively for this and take credit because Republicans, again, this is a huge differentiating issue 
with uh, with Republicans and where they stand in the party of Donald Trump, who wants to treat immigrants like animals, separate families, lock kids in cages, and a contrast of seeing immigrants as a net positive for our community or for our country and for the economy, which is how Democrats view the issue. Right. I was um, rereading your excellent 2020 postmortem, uh, which people can find at equisresearch.us. Um, and at the time it was published in April, you guys said that there still wasn't enough data to fully explain Trump's gains with Latino voters. What has the data you've looked at since then told you about that? And, and do you all have a working theory yet? Well, let me just recap what happened with the Latino vote in three kind of quick bullet points to just show the challenge and the opportunity that exists. The first is that Latinos swung more than any other group from 2016 to 2020. We swung eight points from 2016 to 2020, whereas the API community only swung one point, the African-American community three points. White voters actually swung in the positive direction by three points. In addition, our share of the electorate is growing and is the, along with API voters, are the two groups driving the composition and the growth in the electorate. And then third is we are still performing under our potential. Only half of Latino voters decided to show up this election cycle. So when we look at the, the movement toward Trump, part of what we have to try to understand was what were Latinos experiencing in that moment in time when they cast their ballots? And we were all experiencing COVID in the economy uh, and the economic shutdown in a really unique way. And as small business owners, Latinos are driving entrepreneurship and small business creation in this country right now and have been for a very long time. So they experienced the pandemic and the economic shutdown in a very distinct way. In addition to that, as essential workers, as I talked about earlier, many Latinos were helping to keep the economy running as essential workers during COVID and the pandemic, and they were putting themselves um, at risk and on the front lines with as healthcare workers or restaurant workers um, or other essential workers. And so Latinos, I believe, were experiencing this economic shutdown around COVID in a very different way than what we were talking about, say, in 2018 or 2016, which we were talking about immigration in a very real way in 2016 and 2018, that immigration became a defining issue and a differentiating issue between Democrats and Republicans. And quite frankly, in 2018, we were at the height and during the midterms of the family separation crisis. And so that created a real definition point between Trump and where Democrats were and gave Latinos a very clear choice. Whereas when the economy and the economic shutdown and COVID was driving what was the narrative and what they were experiencing in their everyday lives, it gave a permission structure for many Latinos to vote for Trump because of the economic shutdown and the economy, because we weren't talking about issues like immigration. We have a great graph in our postmortem that shows what we were talking about, even just via Google search, what people were looking for via Google search. And you look and the line is, you know, spikes around 2018, around 2016 on immigration. And then if you look to 2020, it's almost flatlined. So again, we weren't talking about that one issue that could have really differentiated. So that's one theory um, of the case that we have uh, really kind of looked into and dug into. There's still far more for us um, to study and to think about. One is also like how Latinos are getting their news and information 
70% of Latinos are getting their news and information from social media and more specifically YouTube about politics and elections right now. So that is something that we as Democrats and progressives need to think about is Republicans have really invested so much money in thinking about how to reach all people and kind of dominate the YouTube ecosystem with quote unquote news. Um, a lot of astroturf news type organizations who claim to be real news, but are fundamentally persuading and shifting the way people look at politics and elections. So that's like a whole other thing we have to contend with is like the changing nature of the media landscape and how Latinos are consuming that information. OANN just said that they were going to launch a Spanish language vertical. Uh, I saw that. I was just going to ask you about that. <laughs> Latinos need, they need it. And meanwhile, on the other side, you know, this is something we're going to be thinking a lot at Equis Research and at Equis Labs, our kind of um, incubator company, is how do we go and challenge that? How do we go and create new voices and new platforms for us to think about how we persuade and reach Latinos where they are? Because if they're getting their political news and information about what's happening in Cuba, what's happening on January 6th, what's happening with impeachment or any other things through YouTube, we have to be present as well. So I have sort of two follow-up questions to that very excellent answer that I've been thinking about. One, um, it does seem like at least one of the working theories is that by increasing the salience of the issue of immigration, um, you actually it actually could drive a Latino vote towards the Democrats by reminding voters just how extreme the Republicans are on this issue, which is counter to, I think, what some Democrats and some Democratic strategists do, which is to say, okay, immigration is a very uh, divisive issue that the Republicans love to run on, so we should ignore it and talk about the economy. And this makes me think that as we head towards 2022, Democrats in the Biden administration should embrace talking about immigration as, as one way to potentially drive vote. Is that is that right? It has to be a both and, right? Like we don't want Democrats just to talk to Latinos about immigration, but immigration can be a differentiating issue for Latino voters. So I think that's how yeah. Democrats have to think about it. I think you're totally right. Like I have even just seen the kind of fundamental shifts among like pollsters and the Democratic Party and progressive ecosystem shift their views on immigration and start to advise candidates and the committees very differently about how to talk about this. And I think if you think about like the future of what I just kind of talked about with like the challenges and opportunities with Latino voters and, and where we are performing, underperforming and the challenges around persuasion and what who we lost um, in 2020, like we have to find those issues that are going to really motivate the base and create those moments of distinction while also kind of creating a forward looking vision for the country on the economy, on issues like small business, on education. And what I will say is one of the things the Biden administration has done very well is, you know, we have a very strong cabinet that reflects this, the future of this country and four Latino cabinet secretaries who are quite frankly, in charge of four of the most important departments for this country in this moment in time. So you have Isabel Guzman, who is an entrepreneur, who's the head of the Small Business Administration, Miguel Cardona, who's a Puerto Rican, um, who's the head of the Education Department, um, Javier Becerra, who's overseeing much of the uh, COVID response and healthcare implementation uh, as head of HHS, and Ali Mayorkas, you know, a Cuban-American refugee who is overseeing what we're going to 
I do with Cuban refugees and, and refugees coming from Central America and also the broader immigration system. There's a huge story to go out and tell. The Biden administration has so much ammunition to go and have a conversation beyond immigration with Latino voters, so they should absolutely be leaning into that, while at the same time showing how they are trying to move forward on this issue, showing how Democrats are trying to like kind of find a pathway forward that is permanent um, and is addressing both kind of the legalization challenges, but also border security concerns that many people have that we do have to continue to, to have a strong um, kind of policy response to. Um, and so there's a lot to be done. And again, I think people see the value in one kind of taking this issue off the table too, as I mentioned earlier, you know, if we can solve immigration kind of once and for all, or make some very steady head headway in taking on this issue, which we have literally been dealing with for 20 years. I started working in politics in 2004, and I started working on this issue in 2004 and have been in part of many kind of efforts in the Senate, in the House, in the administration and now outside of the administration. It's like, we've got to take this off the table because once we move past this, we can again have that kind of more square conversation on those issues that are the bread and butter issues that really, really matter to Latino voters. And sort of on the on the OAN sort of communication misinformation issue, have you seen any uh, strategies or initiatives either on the media side or on the campaign side um, that could help communicate better to the electorate uh, and sort of break through some of that misinformation? Um, well, quick preview. It's something that I think we at Equis are going to be taking on uh, and helping to understand the landscape better. I'm going to give you a really kind of jaw-dropping example, which is just kind of the difference between how Democrats and progressives have been thinking about this issue and where we need to really shift the way we think about the scope of the problem. Um, there, uh, in South Florida, um, Republicans have built uh, a media echo chamber that has um, long been driven by span a very conservative network of Spanish language radio stations, um, Spanish language television, um, influencers on the ground. There's a guy named Alex Oteola who uh, was uh, previously a uh, Clinton supporter in 2016 and became a Trump supporter, is probably one of the most well-known now uh, YouTube personalities, Cuban-American, kind of my generation, uh, Gen X millennial generation. I'm right on the cusp. Um, same, and, same. Uh, and so let's <laughs> give away my age. Um, but uh, but he is big, they have invested in him as an inf conservative influencer and he's come up in focus groups. So they've built this like echo chamber there. Republicans just bought this conservative um, backed media entity, just bought one of the last more neutral radio stations in South Florida in April, in April Radio Caracol for $350,000, $350,000. Like, oh my God. Some Democratic donors can find that as pocket change in their couch. While Democrats spent $14 million in the last 30 days in the South Florida media market alone, literally setting money on fire with paid media that probably nobody remembers, right? But now Republicans are gonna have yet another tool and weapon in their arsenal um, to reach and engage and persuade Latino voters. So we have to shift our thinking among progressives in the Democratic Party from just like buying radio ads, which are highly efficient. Spanish language radio is very efficient. Don't wanna stop doing that. 
but we have to think about buying radio stations. We have to think about shifting and again, creating a network of, um, you know, YouTube uh, uh, channels and things like that, that reach Latino voters in a culturally competent way with good news and facts, because the best counter to disinformation, as we know, are good news and facts and flooding the zone with good news and facts. The last thing I will just say, Fabs, is that you know, we are up against an entire continent of disinformation coming from Latin America. There are no borders to check the kind of disinformation coming through YouTube, WhatsApp, or other platforms. And, and that is fundamentally shaping the way Latino voters, especially who are closer to the immigrant experience and who are still following news back home and are still well connected into information networks back in their home countries, is shaping the way they are experiencing politics today. There's a woman in Colombia who literally is a newscaster, and I put that in quotation points because, <laughs> in quotation marks, because she is by no means affiliated with a like verified news source. She basically kind of reads the news and opines on it. And on election day had 700,000 people watching her. And so that's the kind of level and scale of information people are getting. And again, that's influencing uh, how Latinos here in the United States are experiencing politics, their trust in government, trust in institutions, trust in the process. Um, so that is something we fundamentally have to kind of deconstruct and understand. There's a whole piece to kind of the social media platform landscape as well, which we believe the, the, the uh, internet platforms are not treating Spanish language disinformation with the same level of urgency or kind of with parody as they are English language disinformation. So we track a lot of these disinformation narratives and oftentimes are kind of taken in English, in English and the platforms are addressing it in English, but not necessarily in Spanish. And so that is kind of, again, a whole wave of information that we are up against and as the kind of world is very is made more connected by the internet, which in so many ways is a very, very good thing, especially when we're seeing what's happening in Cuba and the opportunity to get internet to protesters so they can tell their story and we can get the truth of what's like happening on the ground there. At the same time, it's also very complicated because we in the United States, and I believe the Biden administration needs to understand how interconnected what is happening in Latin America and that geopolitical connection back to how Latinos in the US are experiencing politics and elections. We can't see them as two different things. They are very much connected because we are so connected by the internet and now all of these kind of news and information distribution channels that are influencing the way that people think and experience the world. We say all the time that liberal donors have to start taking building a progressive media ecosystem seriously. It sounds self-interested coming from us, but I always say I want we want more competition out there. And uh, so I'm glad to hear it coming from from you as well, who, who knows this electorate well. Uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Equis Research uh, is your firm. Go check it out. Uh, there's always fantastic information on there. And we really appreciate uh, you coming on the pod. Thanks so much. Thanks to Mehdi Hassan and Stephanie Valencia for joining us today. Everyone have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you next week. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Flavia Casas. Our associate producers are Jazzy Marine and Olivia Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Katie Long, 
Roman Papadimitriou, Caroline Rustin, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, Yale Freed, and Narmel Konian, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. <laughs>